Thank you. May God bless us all with a greater sense that transcendent encounter with God that we studied in Isaiah. Christ whose glory fills the skies. May we see it today. Let's pray. Lord, bless us. We're in your presence. May we be humble before you, sincere and humble so we can hear. Guide us now as we make this journey so that we can live free and be hopeful and courageous. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week at first service and second service, I mentioned a book, Hind's Feet on High Places. Uh, I think most of them were gone after the first service. We've ordered another 100 copies, so in the next Sabbath or two, hopefully they'll be available for you, our gift to you. And may God bless you as you make the journey to the high places. Last week, while I was engaging some of those who watched the service online, there was an uh, encounter I had with someone that I want to follow up with here. This morning, I'm going to talk with you about what to expect in the future. And in this dialogue, a friend wrote, on another note, a phenomenon I've experienced is that often seems what Ellen G. White calls a strange stupor when we know the signs, we feel the call of God to go deeper, but it's like there's a strange paralysis within me. I've had to wrestle with God and myself, but it's still present. I'm not sure if it's a spiritual failure on my part or a spiritual attack or something else. To which I wrote back, wrestle on. And I'll add one more thing. Make a commitment to something God's leading you to. Some of the wrestling will go away. Some of it lingers. But carry on in the name of Jesus. And the response, thank you. I'm sure you're right about that. And this is the phrase I really want to emblazon in your mind. I do have something in mind. Is it going to get easier? Well, yes, it is. I'm going to tell you how. For those of you who decide to quit fighting the fight of faith, it's going to get easier because you're just not going to engage. And it'll, it'll go back to being easy again. And some may be doing that right now, just not really following the Lord into the personal growth moments and the conflicts with self that mark this life. Life's a battle and a march, Ellen White says. And so it's going to get easy because you're going to avoid all the growing moments. You're not going to the high places. The only problem is with that form of getting easy, you're stuck with the end. And in the end, it gets very hard without redemption and salvation. That moment is terrifying to me to think about on behalf of the ones I love. Now, I don't plan to be there. You don't have to be there. It's going to be a sad thing when whether in the name of God or in the name of hedonism, self-interest, self-pleasure, whatever, people have chosen to not bother going on the journey of growing, 
that's a part of life. And then there's the other way it gets easier. And that's the way that I want to talk with you about today because I'd really like for you to choose the other way. Instead of just saying, well, I'm going to avoid those moments. And you know, as Americans and Westerners, we're masters of our own destiny. I don't want to do that. I don't have to do that. And the better educated and well-off you are, the more of those difficult moments you can choose to avoid. If you're poor or you grew up under hardship, you couldn't avoid a lot of those moments. Praise the Lord. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's another way to grow. And the other way to grow for it to get easier is to face it and to deal with it. Now, we've just come through 10 months of a pandemic. I don't know how many months are left. And in the midst of those encounters that have, we've been forced to confront the motivational side of who we are, the decision-making side of who we are. We've had to make some decisions. Do I walk into the wind? Do I swim upstream? Do I face my fears? Or do I simply hole up and hide and save myself? One way is easy in the moment, at least for yourself, and one way is harder. But for any of you that have ever exercised, lifted weights, run a race, you know that it can get easier if you follow the principles of growth. If you have a coach, if you have someone that says, in effect, you can do it, and you need to do it, and good job. This morning, I want to assure you, it is going to get easier. The question is, which way is the road you're on taking you, and do you want to be there? This morning, I'm assuming you all want to walk the narrow path with Jesus. Jesus did make some apparently contradictory statements, didn't he? He did. So we better make sense of them because God doesn't contradict himself. So Jesus said, the road is narrow and the way is what? Hard. It's steep. It's difficult. Whatever version of the Bible you're using. The road is narrow and the way is difficult or the way is hard that leads to eternal life. Jesus said it, didn't he? But he also said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for my way is what? Easy. So let's figure it out here this morning before we get going. It's not hard. The truth of the matter is, is that there's a battle that's going to go on in your life one way or the other. It's either in the now, in readiness for what's coming, or it's in the future, when you're a victim, when you're subject to the powers of bad choices. But here's how it works. You either have a battle that's going on inside of you, in which there is never any peace, Or you have circumstances in which the battle is outside of you because the devil's been evicted from the throne room, God's there, and you've got peace within. Peace within, battle without, or battle within, peace without. Everybody gets to decide. It's important for us to understand that that's how it works, though. You don't get to choose any other option. There are no other options. It's either peace within, battle without, or it's Battle within, peace without. Now, lots of people choose battle within, peace without. They tamp down those convictions, they shove aside those divine promptings, and they walk right on with everybody else so they can maintain peace without. And they only are at peace when circumstances are right. God's people, on the other hand, have learned that he's master of circumstance as long as he's master of our heart, and we can have peace within. This morning... I want to protect your inner journey. I want the inner person, the inner man to be strengthened, as Paul would write. So, I want you parents to think about parenting. 
I know some people that the journey to adulthood was easy. Nothing was hard. The only problem with that was adulthood was hard. (laughs) Then there's the other parents who decided that the journey to adulthood would have to be punctuated with some of those growing moments so that adulthood wouldn't be hard. I know as a kid, you know, whether it was the taste of soap or the racetrack or the switch off the tree or standing in the corner or being grounded in my room or any one of the other myriad creative moments of discipline for the eldest of four children, namely me, I figured out along the way a couple things. My mother loved me, and it was easier to get inside the laws of life, at least the laws of the Kelly home. It made me ready for opportunity when it came my way, not a new learning circle with someone who didn't love and care about me. And so for all of us that are in the journey of discipling, in which case, that's all of us for someone somehow somewhere, or at least the journey of accountability, which is for all of us with somebody somewhere, I want to assure you today, it is going to get easier eventually. The other thing I want to assure you is in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it says that there's a time. It says there's a time to laugh and there's a time to what? Cry. All right? It goes on to tell us there's a season for everything. Now, the idea that God would perpetually put you in a season of crying is contradictory to the Word. The other idea is also true, is that God's always going to shield you from those moments when the tears come. God has seasons in your life, and in those seasons, there's storms. There are moments when you feel like those 12 apostles who are saying, Lord, don't you care? We're going down. Jesus says, there's no down when I'm around. It's only up. And he stands up and he calls the sea to go down, and it does. So this morning... You get to decide. I'm inviting you on the front side of this sermon. Do you want to get stronger and be free in Christ? Can you accept the seasons? Do you know there will be some storms? And do you believe that God actually wishes well for you and he's the best parent there's ever been? If that's the case, hang on if you're in the midst of a a cold, barren season. Rejoice if you're in the midst of a fruitful, bountiful one. And if a storm is intensely around you, be certain Christ is with you. But how is it going to get better is up to us. This morning, I'm going to talk with you about a few things that matter. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3 and 4. What I want to know is, Moses didn't want to go to Israel's deliverance. He didn't feel he was the right person. He even told God what was going to happen. God was not particularly willing to let him off the hook. But then when he gets down there, what he said would happen happens. Now, Moses didn't want to go because it looked hard. As a matter of fact, if you go through chapter 3, the last part, God gives him assurance. And when we start in Exodus chapter 4, he's going to have to do it again. So, God's patience is manifold throughout the Bible. So manifold that when Paul will write 1 Corinthians 13 and he declares the, the declarations of love, The first statement about love is that love is patient. Take good care. Be of good courage, friends. You're a child of God. He's patient. He's not putting you off because you haven't gotten it right. As a matter of fact, he's the best teacher that ever existed. And slowly, he who began a good work in you will finish it. So I want to assure you this morning, what God wants to do, 
is take you on a journey that you're up to. He's not going to give you a challenge that's bigger than you are. And when it feels that way, he's right by your side. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you, Isaiah writes for God, with my righteous right hand. Where are you in that spectrum? Do you just need strengthening? Or do you need to be held up with God's right hand? He'll do it. Hang on. Moses, though, is reluctant. Verse 1. Then Moses said, what if they don't believe me or listen to me? His shoes are off. His posture is attentive. What do I say? For they'll say, the Lord has not appeared to you. Forty years he's been absent. He shows back up. He's a virtual stranger to the company of Israelites. The Lord said to him, what's in your hand? He said, it's a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground. It became a serpent. And Moses got out of there fast. Verse 4. But the Lord said to Moses... Stretch out your hand and grab it by its tail. Now, how many serpentologists are with us today? And how many poisonous snakes live here in Michigan? I've been told only one. It's a nice thing about living in a cold place, by the way. But you know, as a kid, we used to go down to the creek. There was the snake grass. What a name. Don't want to be in that snake grass. Then you'd get down there and you'd be watching, and all of a sudden, from the dart, darting out from the bank, get it. I learned real fast you don't get it by the tail, or it'll turn around and give you something to remember. That's where God said to grab it. Not an accident. You take it by the riskiest position, reach out and grab it by the tail. Moses knew about snakes, he'd been a shepherd for the last 40 years. And how many showdowns with those hissing, puffing, aggressive snakes of the desert he'd had, I don't know. But the idea of grabbing that snake by the tail was not natural to him. That's why God said, do it. It's going to get easier once you figure out I'm in charge. Stretch out your hand. Catch it by the tail. It became stiff. Then it was a staff in his hands. That's the first sign, verse 5, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Verse 6, then the Lord furthermore said to him, now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand in his bosom. When he took it out, it was leprous like snow. So in other words, friends, he was infected bad. Then he said, put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again. When he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh, pink and healthy, 80-year-old man. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign, those words have a little bit of foreknowledge in them, I suspect. God understood they weren't going to believe, or they would and then they wouldn't. Human beings are a fickle sort. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say to them, you'll take some of the water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So how does it work? Moses goes down and he talks to Pharaoh. And he says, we want to take a break. Pharaoh says, you've got too much time on your hands. Tell those slaves to go get their own straw. It turns out that Moses went from being received by Israel as one sent from God to Moses being the biggest problem Israel had in the last 40 years. And they don't want him going into Pharaoh anymore. And so the serpent that eats the other serpents and the display of leprosy, we're not sure that one was done in the presence of Moses. That might have been simply for the Israelites. But I do know this. Those first three plagues were to recalibrate the attentiveness of Israel. 
Because Israel went from believing in Moses and believing in the signs to not wanting anything to do with Moses. Why? Because Moses put them in a growth zone. If your deliverer comes and it immediately gets worse, it's a little hard for the deliverer to get any influence and respectability and traction, isn't it? And of course, every leader's afraid of this. They'll go do something, and then all of a sudden, they'll be out on a limb, they'll feel abandoned, and they'll wonder, why did they get themselves in this place to begin with? So what does God do? God sends them into Pharaoh. We have the snakes. God sends them into Pharaoh. We have the water turned to blood. God does one more thing that actually affects all of Egypt, including Goshen, and those frogs are everywhere. God has to recalibrate the interest of Israel in being willing to listen to Moses just as he's attempting to recalibrate that of Pharaoh. Fortunately, Israel comes around and he says, you know what? This may be a bumpy, rocky ride, may be a bumpy road, but we know we need to go with God and God is with Moses. So I don't know what the future holds, friends. I don't know if we're going to get past COVID-19 and we're going to have a little break in the birth pangs, but I know this, like when the nation's of Rome surrounded uh, Jerusalem at the end of time, if there's a break, if we have some breathing room, it's not just so that we can get out of Jerusalem. It's so that the gospel can go to the world like God intended. And we, bought a, we ought to be intent about where we're at. So what do you want? Do you just want life to get back to normal? Are you unwilling to let God be the coach, the director, the discipler, the father, as it were, of your life? I'll tell you this. As a young man, I was introduced to Christ in a turbulent time in my life, turbulent time for my family. I found in Christ the peace that brought joy to my heart like nothing else could. Didn't matter what was going on in my home. Didn't matter what kind of financial headaches and hardships we were up against. When I went to God, when my heart was right with God, I was free. Along the way, I made a decision. And the good news was it was bequeathed to me. It was a gift to God from me. I never needed to live like I wasn't a citizen of heaven. I was destined and given the prerogative and the privilege to live free. In other words, I never needed to carry burdens that kept me from walking on clouds even though I'm walking on earth. And I'm not saying my life hasn't had its hardships. I've had plenty, more than I'd like to recount. But I will tell you this. When the Spirit comes and convicts me and says to me, Ron, you need to go make that right with somebody. I have decided a long time ago that the way I want to live, and God said I could live, is the way I'm going to live, which means I'm not carrying burdens into a day, a week, a month, or a year, especially a new year, that I don't have to carry. And some of those directives are what I want to talk about with you today. When it comes to the idea of purpose in your life, Moses did not want to go down and do what, Moses, what God said to do. And for those of you listening to me here today, just like the person texting me who didn't want to live in this potential spiritual stupor or realize that the spiritual appetites, since blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that they're not what they ought to be, that maybe there's some kind of spiritual sickness going on. And they're vulnerable enough in this text to say, you know, I'm wrestling with God and wrestling with myself. This morning, I want you to wrestle with God and I want you to wrestle with yourself because beyond a shadow of a doubt, we've experienced a measure of corporate pandemic sickness inside Christianity. Adventism has not been left immune or alone. 
And it might be that the journey out of this thing is no different than it's been for any other human being. Conviction. God said to Moses, you're to go. Moses says, I don't want to go. Moses doesn't want to make the commitments. If you want to live free and you want it to get easier, you're going to have to figure out where God is leading you. And like my texture, the thing about her text was that she said, I think I already know. The Holy Spirit speaks to his people. He doesn't live in them wandering ignorance. You can't have a shepherd who says, you'll hear a voice behind you saying, walk this way, and you go the other way, and you live free. You can't have a good shepherd whose sheep know his voice, and you not expect to hear it. It's in the Word. It's in the spirit of prophecy. It's in relationships with godly people. It's sometimes even in circumstance. But you've got to learn to hear the voice because the shepherd is calling us to the high places. And if you want to live free on the inside, you've got to let him be God. It's the only position he's willing to have in your life. Moses said, no, I don't want to go. God said, well, in my plan, you're going. Moses finally goes. It gets worse before it gets better. Don't let that escape you. Whether you're dealing with a relational problem, a parental situation, an occupational challenge, or whatever it is, when you go to dealing with it, it will almost always get worse before it gets better. And a lot of people hit the easy button in the midst. Eject. The canopy flies open. You're ejected out of the situation. I just won't talk to him. And by the way, friends, do yourselves all a huge favor. Please don't solve problems in writing. Don't text through your problem. Don't email your problem away. If you can't be with the person face-to-face, get on the phone. But if you can see them face-to-face and you've got a moment of growth with somebody, do it in person and maximize the benefits of all levels of communication. You want it to get easier in 2021? You're going to know the purpose of God and follow the convictions. Take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 4, or actually chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, we have someone else who's dealing with conviction. His name is Saul, but that's about to change. Ever since he held the coat for all of those that picked up the stones to kill Stephen, he hasn't had a single moment where he's free. His conscience has bothered him for weeks, months, and years. He's going around, though, doing what a lot of people do. They double down on their default. In other words, Saul has a strength. What is Saul's strength? He's intense. He's purposeful. He's smart. He's organized. He's good at getting done what he's going to get done. All of that to the liability of him taking time to actually connect with God. He predetermined that he's not to have anything to do with the followers of the way except extinguish them. And so here he is on the road to Damascus, and he has gone further into his default, which is work harder, exhaust more, destroy them if you can. Now Saul was breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord when he went to the high priest. And he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now what you can't do is read this and suspect that God's left him alone all these years. God doesn't leave anybody alone. He paid an eternal price for their salvation and the Holy Spirit speaking, which is why when you touch a sensitive subject with somebody that they're under conviction on, they get mad at you. If you're really seeking truth, you don't have to get mad. 
As a matter of fact, you can say what David said in Psalm 141, let the righteous smite me, it'll be a balm to me. Let them strike me, it'll be gladness to my soul. The problem is when we protect a spiritual wound and anybody goes to dealing with that wound, we have to get mad. Now, there is a place for anger in the Christian experience, but it's not usually self-protection or self-interest. There are relational elements and, and care for others. Anger is an emotion, but when that emotion is channeled in resistance to somebody's perspective and idea, it's problematic. Saul had not been left alone by God, and God isn't going to leave you alone either. Everybody sort of knows what God wants them to do. If it really seems whacked out and weird, talk to somebody and be very honest with them. One of my sons was giving advice the other day. I could tell. I was in the room. He was talking on the phone. I had to tell him some important news. I said, son, you need to know something about giving advice. The people are very good at giving you the information that will get you to give them the advice they want. So unless people tell you everything and they put it all out on the table, you're liable to reinforce their wrong direction. It's exceptionally important, friends, that we let God be God. He wasn't leaving Saul alone. And finally, the moment came to deal the blow that would break the spirit of pride and resistance to the Holy Spirit. Don't get in the way of God. If he's got somebody in the pig pen so they can come to themselves, don't get them out of the pig pen in the name of God. Verse 4, he fell on the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. The enemy was God. He didn't know it, but God knew it. And some of the ideas you have about relating to God might be in a similar position of resisting the Spirit. Get up and enter the city, and it'll be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate or drank. Now, I want you to think about that period of time. Saul, during that period of time, is soul-searching like nobody soul-searched. You think you're doing what's right. You're grabbing up moms and dads and children. You're taking them down to Jerusalem to be tried under Jerusalem law, Israelite law. You're so right that every time you hear a cry for pity, it resonates in your heart as legitimate, and you run right over it. There is no compassion, only ruthless orthodoxy, doing what you know is right, even though what is right is slapping you in the face as you do what you think is right. For three days in the home of somebody that was a connector point for Saul, there is no eating and no drinking. There is only praying. And Saul is having to wrestle with God, wondering if he has simply got everything he deserved. Is this blindness a new judgment that is perpetual? But Saul is searching his heart and searching the annals of memorized scripture, he is connecting with God, and after those three days, God is going to connect with him, verse 11. 
Actually, let's start in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight, inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, he's praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias answered, a little bit like Moses, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on him. And God said, yeah, you're right, Ananias, this is going to be hard and scary, you don't have to do it. It gets harder. But the Lord said to him, go. I'm not going to tell you how it's all working out in the end every time I ask you to do something. There'll be a thousand reasons not to do what I said to do. It won't make sense always from your point of view. Go. And I want to know, no, I don't deserve to know, although it might involve me somewhere along the line or another spiritual leader, what's God telling you to go do more than go to church? This is part of your culture. Everybody's supposed to go to church. Maybe he's saying to you, you go to Sabbath school too because you've got something to learn. And you go study that Sabbath school lesson so you've got something to tell. Maybe God's saying, you go. And whether it looks like it fits in or not or turns out well or not, you go. You go to that prayer meeting. You go to that small group study. You go to that foreign field. You go down the street. I don't know. But I know to grow, you got to go. And God puts us on a path. Go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Wow. There's something about this convicting power of God that liberates people and makes them free. It gives them strength and purpose. I want to talk to you about identity for a moment. Turn back in the book of Acts to chapter 4. Peter and John have gone into the temple to worship post. Actually, go back to Matthew 26. Let's start there first. Matthew 26 Peter is in the temple precinct in both situations, Matthew chapter 26. But I want you to see an amazing transition. Jesus being tried, Matthew 26, verse 69. Everybody ran away and left Jesus alone, but they've tended to drift back. John never gets right in the mix. John watches from the shadows. He's not trying to just act like he's one of everybody else. But Peter, on the other hand, he does what a lot of 21st century Christians do. He wants to mingle in, be just like them, not stand out, don't look any different. He doesn't want to bear any shame for Christ. He doesn't want to be embarrassed about his Seventh-day Adventist upbringing. He doesn't want to be out there as a 
a pariah, an outcast. He wants to just sit by the fire and be okay and watch and act like not bothering him. There's plenty of Christians today who haven't counted the cost to follow Jesus and they're living just like this. If you raise your kids to just fit in with the culture, whether it's Adventist culture or whether it's Adventist culture infected with the world, you can have a Peter experience for them or you could give them a different experience. It could be a little hard now and be easier later or it can be very easy now and very hard later. Peter was sitting outside, verse 69, in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you're talking about. You know what we call that? A lie. I don't know much how much he thought about it, not enough to leave. When he'd gone out into the gateway, verse 71, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were with him, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with a promise, an oath, which, of course, Jesus had directed him not to do. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But if you want to impress somebody, don't just tell a lie. Tell a really powerful lie and make it look like it's a holy and true statement, which is what he did. And a little later, the bystanders came up and they said to Peter, surely you two are one of them. For even the way you talk gives you away. And he thought to himself, I better talk different. And he began to curse and to swear, and that seemed to do the job. Now, I don't talk about cursing and swearing very often. But I'm going to talk about cursing and swearing right now. I grew up around cursing and swearing. I don't really think I thought it was a good idea until I heard one of my cousins do it. My mother didn't think it was a very good idea, even though she did it. That's soap going in and out of the mouth. Have you ever heard what the gagging sound sounds like? I don't care who you heard cursing. I don't care if every person around you curses. The heart of a Christian is pure and clean. And beauty. The Bible says... Proverbs 15, the, the lips of the righteous are a tree of life. Sweet, this is my addition, my commentary now. Sweet, beautiful, kind, respectful. Christians don't curse and Christians don't swear, no matter how mad you get. You may cry, you may faint. You may run away and scream, but don't curse. It's nothing but a poor outlet and an unwillingness to suffer by yourself. Peter begins cursing to get the point across. 
And he makes a statement that he regrets the rest of his life. He says, I don't know the man. And sometimes our actions say exactly the same thing to the world. We don't really know him. Spirit of Prophecy tells us in Desire of Ages, Jesus looked at him right then. No judgment, no anger, just pity. And he runs away. Now, I don't have the time in this sermon, but I do want to go to the different man. Acts chapter 4. Peter and John raise up a paralytic. Now they've got a crowd listening to them. The temple guards are sent to arrest them. And they find themselves before the Sanhedrin. Verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there. And Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly descent. It's the important people. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power and what name have you done this? There's an accusation in the question. And Peter is not going to answer it. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man had been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you here in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. And if he wanted to put a cherry on top, this is what it is. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And there is stunned silence in the hall. Now, how do you go from Matthew 26, 69 to Acts 4? What happens to a person? I'll tell you what happens. Peter has an identity shift where he says, all of these people, i.e., all of the Sanhedrin, all of the institutional leaders of the church, and by the way, he still calls them rulers and elders. He's not disrespecting them. But all of those people and all of the opportunity they might open for him, all of the identity he had in that system have been traded away for simply one thing, the all-exceeding, surpassing glory of Jesus Christ. And it didn't matter to him what these people thought anymore. It only mattered what his Lord knew about him. And his Lord knew he had it in him to betray him, to deny him. Who shapes your identity circle? I want to tell you something. Whether it's the President of the United States or the President of your institution, they're all just people. And the sooner you can, with proper honor, acknowledge their sacrifices and achievements to serve, but understand they are as human as you are, and liable to mistakes as you are, and prone to be bent by the culture as you are, you'll recognize what the psalmist said, what the, what the proverb writer says, Solomon in Proverbs 29, that the fear of man is a snare. 
Now, I'm not trying to take out of the social interactions of humanity the dynamics of looking up to people. The Bible says, render honor to those for whom honor is due. Do it. But when it comes down to the dynamics of your identity and the compromising elements of wanting the favor or not wanting to deal with the, 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 the calumny or the criticism of, of the masses or even your little circle, I want you to remember Jesus put his hands out on a wooden cross and they pierced them so that you could fit in in heaven. And if it means you don't fit in here right now quite as well, then bear the cross as a badge of honor and be who you're supposed to be. You want to be free in 2021? You want it to get easier? Decide whose opinion matters. Jesus said, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before God and the angels in heaven, Revelation 3.5. Can you imagine standing in the presence of a litany of holy angels? And Jesus walking up beside you and putting his hand on his shoulder and saying to Gabriel and everybody else, this is Ron Kelly. He's like Abraham. He's my friend. Can you imagine? Just put your name in there. But for us to be embarrassed to confess the name of Jesus before our work associates or our extended family or our immediate family, what would that mean? It was not too much for Jesus to be naked on a cross and die of exhaustion and thirst and the weight of our sins. Peter said, it doesn't matter to me anymore. All of this is rubbish. But I know one thing. Christ exalted in my life is everything. And you need him too. And he gives a sermon, a gospel message to all those members of the Sanhedrin. And he says, listen, you're all confused. There's only salvation in one name. And it's the name that made that poor paralytic walk. And he can make you walk spiritually too. And what is the commentary? Verse 13, it says, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and they began to recognize something. They're just like Jesus. They're not backing down because they love us too much. Now, of course, they didn't connect all those dots. But it was love that motivated them. If you have an identity that's built on the conformity of the culture of cult, in other words, never before have we been so shaped by the masters of identity because we carry these devices so we see what's cool, we hear what's cool. It's not cool, friends. It's Christless, much of it. It's immoral much of it. It's sacrilegious much of it. And it shouldn't be shaping your identity. It shouldn't be on in your home and it shouldn't be in your pocket. And if you can't control it, it will control you. But our identity shaped by the wrong thing will give us burdens to carry. Because I want to tell you something. As soon as you've got to please somebody the wrong way, who doesn't hold the values you hold, you've got a burden to bear, and it's a very manipulable one. I want to talk to you about conscience for a few minutes. In Psalm 32, I'm going to... David says, How blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven 
And he talks about how God's hand was upon him and he was just drying up on the inside. God may bring to your mind something you need to make right. Now, I'm not wanting to take a person whose conscience is easily hijacked by Lucifer, who's the accuser of the brother. I don't want anybody to go out of this message this morning, weight it down with something I said applied in the wrong way. But if there's something you legitimately need to make right and it won't go away and it hangs on you, like David's sin of murdering Uriah and taking his wife as his wife hung on him, confess it and be free. Could anybody say amen? And if it involves somebody else, as embarrassing or as awkward as it may be, I told my mother when I saw her, or when I was talking to her on the phone, I said, Mom, I'm going to write a letter to the neighbors, and I'm going to apologize for something. Now, I don't live there anymore. I don't live at 419 Joliet Road anymore, but I wanted to tell my mom I was getting ready to apologize for a childhood thing I did that I shouldn't have done, and I knew better. And I'm going to put a check in the envelope because what I did you're all wondering now aren't you <laughs> I'll tell you what I did I'm embarrassed about it but there was a family on our road it's easy to have a whipping boy somewhere somebody scapegoat somebody to mess with Somebody to blame everything on, somebody to look down on, somebody the whole community can, and I'm not going to use any names or anything else like that, but not too many houses from mine was one of those families that just didn't get accepted. And so one night, I'd like to think it was somebody else who suggested it, I don't think it was me, but they said, why don't we go egg this person's house? Yeah, let's go do that. So I held those thin-shelled little depositories of chicken life in my hand, and I made sure they got their target. And I'm going to write a letter, and I'm going to stick a check in for the damage I caused, and I just didn't want my mom being embarrassed by the actions of her eldest son as he goes to make him right so that she knows what's going on. Besides, I was a minor then. No excuse. I knew it was wrong. But if my mother would have found out about that, I would have been dead. Shows you what great lakes, lengths human folly in the youth can go to. Aren't you glad David prayed in Psalm 25, Lord, remember not the sins of my youth. I need to make it right, and I'm going to make it right. There have been other moments when to parishioners and family members, I've probably established the greatest amount of credibility because when somebody says they're sorry, that goes against everything that the culture says you should do. But it goes completely with what Christ said to do. Be a reconciler. Have the ministry of reconciliation. There's one more thing 
maybe two. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Some of you are going to go into 2021, and when we reach herd immunity, either through a vaccine or through exposure, you're just going to gravitate right back into living the American dream and enjoying all the benefits of your privileges. Pastor Larry Lichtenwaller sat right here this morning for our Sabbath school session and reminded us this church with its 1,100 members comprises he didn't put it this way, but I'm going to put it this way. This church with its 1,100 members comprises one-fourth of the total membership for the Middle East North African Union, which has 550 million people in its geographical area. Now imagine if this church comprised one-fourth of the total Seventh-day Adventist population for all of the United States. Would you feel like you were standing at the base of an impossible-to-climb mountain? So there are people listening to me right now or will hear this message online or are watching right now, and they need to think about going to the Middle East, North Africa Union and attending college there and getting their degree there, which will be as good as a degree from many other places, and it will be certified. And they ought to go as missionaries and strengthen the weak. Some of the rest of us ought to be going to church more often, not just on Sabbath morning, to strengthen the bonds. I was reading out of this book, Extreme Ownership, that I referenced to that Mark Bugby was reading during our site visit for our Florida marine biology trip. I came home. I was telling my son about the book. My son says, Dad, you have that book. Oh, I do? Yeah, sitting on a shelf. Went down and found it. I opened it up. I read the first chapter. Then the other night, I thought, I'm not going to read from the beginning. I'm just going to read in the middle. As I was reading in the middle, I came across this amazing statement. Do you know what the Navy SEALs consider to be their most powerful and significant attribute? Above everything else, training and equipment, strategic advantage, it is the bond that they share with each other. I wonder if God doesn't have a special operative forces group for the end time who ought to be bonded just like that. But they aren't because they're not doing what he said. They're not coming together. They are forsaking the assembling. And consequently, they don't have the first base of an elemental bond to each other, which is what is needed more now than ever before. I'll preach about this till I'm blue in the face. Because after I'm gone, death, life, or transition... This church could be strong until they see the face of Jesus, but you're not strong on your own. No man is an island, John Doan would write, the English poet. No man stands alone. And in 2021, we shouldn't be standing alone either because it appears that with enough Seventh-day Adventists standing alone or only together for the opening closing hymns of Sabbath, it appears the church can keep losing ground and losing face and losing influence in a skeptical world. 
I'm inviting you out on Wednesday night. I invited you last Wednesday night, last Sabbath to Wednesday night. I'm inviting you again. We'll start our 10 days of prayer this Wednesday night. I'm inviting you to come. Why not fill the sanctuary just like this? If for the Navy SEALs, the most important component of their success in the deepest, darkest, most evil places is their bond, then maybe we better be intentional about bonding with somebody that we don't know. And maybe we ought to weave a tapestry so tight in the love of Christ, in the knowledge of this truth, that when the crisis really breaks open on this world, we don't fall to pieces. Okay. The last thing I'm going to talk with you about is forgiveness. If you want it to get easier, forgive the person who didn't ask. If you want it to get easier, forgive the person who does ask. If you don't want a root of bitterness spoiling everything in 2021, live life with a spirit of forgiveness. Look at people through the eyes of Christ. Find power to love and to see their actions in the best light. You see, friends, I decided a long time ago I'm going to live free. When God lays it on my heart to do something, I may chafe like Moses chafed. I may resist like Moses resisted. I may push back and shove it down like Paul or Saul did. But God is a good parent. God is a faithful shepherd. He hasn't let go of you and he hasn't let go of me. He's calling us for 2021 to be the very best year. The road ahead is not getting easier for the Christian. The road ahead is not going to be flatter and with fewer pitfalls and speed bumps than it had before. But Christ, in our midst, is going to make us stronger, wiser, more loving, more unified, and we're going to win in the name of Jesus anyway. And this morning, I've showed you some of the ways you can go into this year and live above the fray, fly free, and know the joy of the Lord. Let Him be Lord of everything, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. Do it all, all, every little bit, every jot, tit, and iota unto the Lord. And may the road ahead be a road of anticipation and joy. We're going home all the way home. And whether it's this year or in a year to come, the next step is another step closer. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing our closing hymn. Number 377, Go Forth, Go Forth with Christ.
Father, the road is a way to go somewhere. And Father, for too long we've had distractions which have risen in significance over the ultimate goal of letting the world know there's a better place waiting. There's a God that can be loved and adored and worshipped with all our heart, mind, and soul. Forgive us, Lord, when we've allowed our allegiance to be shaped by a culture that's pressing all around, where we've not set down the barriers to that culture that protect identity and our ability to hear your voice. And I'm praying in this new year, Lord, give us strength to be strong. Thank you for the promise that your arm is not short. Thank you that you're the same God that led Israel out of Egypt, and you're getting ready to lead your spiritual Israel out of this spiritual Egypt. So Lord, bless every leader, especially bless every pastor and parent, every teacher. And I pray, guide us now, Lord, to understand what it looks like to be led from above. Don't save us from the wrestling, Lord. Just save us from the failure. And may we walk with Jesus all the way. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We want to honor you. Bless the rest of this Sabbath. May we rest perfectly in you as we've surrendered everything for this new year and this next hour into your life. In Jesus' name, amen.